How many of you like putting puzzles together? Let me see your hands. You are sick people. There are a lot of sick people here today. I don't mind putting puzzles together, but I like my puzzles to be no more than about 10 pieces and about this big, all right? Already pre-cut out with plenty of, you know, thick border space so I know exactly where the piece goes. When I was uh, growing up, my mom uh, decided that our family needed to have an activity that we would do together. And uh, so she went out and she bought a thousand piece puzzle set, something like that, a couple of them. Maybe it was 500, but it was a lot. And I remember her getting the card table out and opening up the box and then taking out those what looked like to me millions of pieces of, of puzzles, right, puzzle pieces, and then spraying them out on the card table, covering up every square inch of that card table that we had. And then we all had to go and turn the foolish things over. So you got, you know, the side that has a little bit of color to it. And, uh, and then she'd say, well, let's just, let's put the puzzle together. And I remember standing there and just looking at those pieces, kind of overwhelmed, not knowing, you know, where do you start? And for those of you who do puzzles, I don't need you to come tell me how you do it. I know you start with straight edges first, all right? But I would just sit there and look at those things and try to get them together and nothing would fit. And finally, out of exasperation, I would take pieces that looked like they should fit together and begin to kind of snap them in place. And that's when my mom decided that we probably shouldn't do this as a family project. Now, why did I tell you about puzzles? Because when it comes to prophecy in the Bible, it's an awful lot like a great big puzzle that you're trying to put together. And throughout the 66 books of the Bible, you find the pieces of the puzzle that are laid out there for you. And the challenge is to kind of get them all out of the Scripture and then place them on the table, so to speak, and try to see the picture that God wants us to have of the future, our future, and the future beyond us. And the problem is the pieces don't always neatly fit together. Sometimes I find myself actually wanting to take some of those pieces and, and force them together. But when we do that, we can end up with a pre-skewed view of the future that God has for us. Sometimes the best thing to do is what my mom used to do when she would put those puzzles uh, together. And that is my mom would leave the table for a while and she'd just kind of look at the picture on the front of the box and then just kind of come back to it and work on it. By the way, uh, any, who would like to have this puzzle? I, don't, I certainly don't want it, all right? Here, buddy, all right? You get whoever they are to help you put that thing together, all right? And uh, if any parents are upset with me over that, just write me a note, all right? But uh, she would leave and then she would come back and, and she'd have kind of more clarity and she'd put a little bit more together. She'd leave, she'd come back and she'd do the same thing again. And I have come to realize that when it comes to dealing with prophecy in the Bible, sometimes you just have to let some of the pieces lay on the table, not force them together, and walk away and let time go by, let events go by, and you'll be amazed that as you do that, when you come back to the prophecy puzzle, you'll begin to see that there are certain pieces that now make sense, that now begin to merge together. And that's what we're here to do this afternoon, this morning. We're here to see how right in front of our eyes, right now in our world, it appears that at least one important piece of the prophecy puzzle is actually coming together. And we're going to look at it because I think you and I may be watching it happen right in front of us on CNN or whatever news station you watch. 
we may be reading about it in periodicals and newspapers. And I don't want us to be caught off guard. I want us to see that God already paints a picture of what the future is going to look like. So I want you to take your Bibles out, and I want you to turn to a very mysterious book, the book called Ezekiel in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bibles with you today, grab a pew Bible that's right in front of you there. And uh, about page 614 or so, you'll find the book of Ezekiel. And I encourage you to have the word open, because I know you're going to want to go home and read this some more. It's a very important passage of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 38 is where we're going to start today. And uh, I'm going to wear my Walgreen glasses, all right? It's getting pretty bad, folks. Okay, and I had a broken nose from a while back, so it doesn't always fit. Here we go, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him, saying, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togarmah from the far north with all its troops. The many nations with you, get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you. And take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war. Whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations. And now all of them live in safety. And I want to stop there for just a minute. And I want to say to you that what we've just read here in the rest of chapter 38 and 39 has not taken place yet. Most Bible scholars agree that it hasn't happened yet. Now, you'll always find a few who will try to read back into it history and say, well, this happened when this event took place or that event took place. But if you look at it honestly and read it carefully, nothing like it has happened yet in the world. But it appears that it may be lining up to take place in our day and in our time. In fact, the only thing in this passage which has probably already happened is found in verse 8. After many days you'll be called to arms. In future years you'll invade a land that has recovered from war. Whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Which had long been desolate. They have been brought out from the nations. And now all of them live in safety. That's probably a fulfillment of chapter 36 and 37. Which may have happened in 1948 when Israel became a nation. When Israel became a nation. And all the peoples of Jews scattered around the world came and converged and have been established since that time. But even since that time, as Israel became a nation to our day, there is nothing to equal what we read about here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. There have been tremors, there have been moments, there have been crises in the Middle East, but nothing to equal what's being described here. So let's dig into this a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about some of these places that are mentioned here in the passage of Scripture. Who is Gog or what is Gog in verse 2? Most scholars agree it's either the name of a person or more likely a title like Pharaoh or Tsar or President or Prime Minister. The word Magog, the word Meshech, Tubal, there are some scholars who say, you know what, that specifically refers to Russia. In fact, the word for chief prince is Rosh. And some folks say that it could be, you know, Meshech is Moscow and they label all the cities. Other scholars say you can't do that. That's going by the phonetic, the sound. 
the actual you know, study of the word, the etymology of the word won't lend to a specific place. But they do agree it does lend to a region. In fact, if you go over to verse 15 in the passage of Scripture, you'll, you'll read these words. It says, you will come, referring to Gog, Magog, Meshech, Tubal. You will come from your place in the what? In the far north and many nations with you. Well, if you take a map out and you look at Israel and you go to the farthest north, what nation is, can you find there? It's Russia, right? And so we'll probably have a reference here to Russia and the former Soviet republics. Now, other areas that are mentioned here are a lot more clear. For instance, Persia. We know modern-day uh, Persia is what? It's Iran. Kush, we know to be the region of Ethiopia and Sudan. Put, we know to be Libya, Algiers, and Tunisia. Gomer, probably Turkey. Some, some folks who study the, the migration of peoples across time think it could refer to, to Germany or Austria. And then Beth Torgama, we're pretty sure that refers to Turkey and the Turkish or Turkic-speaking people of Asia Minor. So what you have when you look at Ezekiel chapter 38 and, verse, and chapter 39 is you have a picture of Israel being attacked from the north, being led by the, the nation to the north, as well as probably from the south, and from the east. And the question before us is, how realistic is that? Is that a possibility in our time? I want to suggest to you that not only is this realistic, I want to say to you that it, is, it could be imminent. That as we look at world events right now through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of geopolitical activity, it seems, it appears that the pieces really are lining up and what Ezekiel talked about in chapter 38 and 39 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is indeed coming together. Now, will it happen in the next year or the next two years, the next five years? I'm not here to predict when. Is what we see happening geopolitically right now Exactly what's being described here, it perhaps could be, or it may be a dress rehearsal that really lets us see how this could take place. So I want to take you, and I want you to see a scenario that's unfolding in our world today. And as I do so, I want to preface it by, by asking you to um, give me some leeway in some of the things that I'm going to say. For instance, I'll be talking about Russia, and I'll be talking about Iran, and I'll be talking about some other nations, including our own. I don't want you to walk out of here think, thinking that I'm saying that all Russians are bad, or all Iranians are bad, or all Americans are bad, all right? What I'm dealing with here when I talk about the evil of those nations are the evil people or leaders of those nations. And I want us to be clear on that because we have many brothers and sisters in Christ who live in those lands and many, many, many others who have yet to come to Christ and I don't want to indict them with what I say. So do you understand how I'm using it geopolitically, okay? I don't want to offend anybody as we do that. Coming back to the passage, though, I want to kind of lay out the scenario. One thing is absolutely sure. The Soviet Union, which crumbled so long ago, has really stepped back onto the plate. Russia has really stepped back onto the stage of world history and bent on its conquest of world domination. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not here to say Putin is Gog, but I'll tell you this much, he sure is behaving as he's been likened in the media to a czar. I want to read to you a quote from Putin himself. It goes like this. From the very beginning, Russia was created as a super-centralized state. That's practically laid down in its genetic code, its traditions, and in the mentality of its people. 
in certain periods of time, in a certain place, under certain conditions, monarchy has played and continues to this day to play a positive role. The monarch doesn't have to worry about whether or not he will be elected or about petty political interests or about how to influence the electorate. He can think about the destiny of the people and not become distracted with trivialities. Make no mistake about it, we know who's pulling the strings behind the curtain in Russia these days. We know that Putin is very active, and he's at least a type of Gog, G-O-G, mentioned in verse 2. And we know that when that person, whoever it is, shows up, they will be very Putinist in their mindset of setting out in world domination and world conquest. In fact, if you think carefully what's going on geopolitically right now, you'll find that there's a, whole, there's a whole change in the attitude, the idea of the political elite in Russia. Joe Rosenberg, who wrote Epicenter, Epicenter 2.0, has interviewed some of those elite leaders, and one of them at least has said that Putin is a lightweight compared to those who are emerging who could easily replace him, who believe in what is called the final thrust southward. Does that sound familiar? Having read Ezekiel 38. Make no mistake about it. Now, I want you to look at another passage with me in Ezekiel. Go to chapter 38, and let's look at verse 10 and read that together. And listen carefully. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins And the people gather from the nations, rich in livestock and goods and living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry out silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and seize much plunder? I want you to focus on verse 10. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. In other words, this leader will be very clever. This leader will form what one might call an evil alliance. And I want to ask you a question. When you look at what's going on in our world right now, when you think of what's happening in the Middle East, isn't there evidence to indicate that an evil alliance indeed is forming? I want you to think about What's going on between the Russian leadership and Iran for just a moment? It's pretty scary. Do you know that there was a time when Russia and Iran were enemies, when Russia actually occupied certain portions of Iran? But now we see a whole change of mind, a whole different uh, attitude towards Iran and Iran towards Russia. They are truly coupling. They are truly becoming buddies. They are becoming Evil friends in that sense. Listen to some of these headlines that I want to share with you that come right out of the news recently. New railway to link Russia and Iran via Azerbaijan. Putin defends arms sales to Syria and Iran. Iran regards Russia as possible partner to build 20 nuclear power plants. Kremlin ready to defend Iran. Russia agrees to $1 billion arms deal with Iran. And let's talk about Iran for just a moment. And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. You know, you and I can make fun of him. Late night comedians can make jokes about him. But put nuclear technology in that man's hand. Put a nuclear bomb in that man's hand. And I don't care what you say about him. He is a very 
formidable foe. And he has made it widely known that it is his desire to wipe Israel off the face of the map. He looks at them as the little who? The little Satan. And who in his mind is the great Satan? The United States. And it's his ambition to wipe them off. Why? Because he believes in a certain sect of Islam that says that world chaos needs to be created in order for the 12th Imam or Mahdi, the version of the Islamic Messiah, to show up, squell it, and establish Islam throughout the world. And he believes that he's been called to usher in this chaos, which will usher in this Mahdi who will change the world. He believes that as much as you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ today. And I want you to think about that and be sobered by that. In fact, he has even said that he has had communication with this Messiah figure. And he's now preparing the way. If you ask yourself, what is it that Russia has an interest in Iran? And why does Iran have such an interest in Russia? It makes a whole lot of sense. Russia wants world dominance and Russia needs cash. Iran has oil and Iran wants what? Iran wants nuclear technology, perhaps, probably, to create nuclear weapons. But Putin has gone beyond, beyond Iran. I want you to think about the other stuff. And I'm not making this up, folks. This comes right out of the news, and many of you should be aware of this already. He has befriended places like Syria. He's befriended places like Ethiopia and Sudan, Hamas. He has uh, befriended and established relationships with Saudi Arabia and with Turkey. If you just watch what's going on geopolitically, you see him wrapping himself around Israel. He can't move uh, west and he can't really move east, but he certainly can move south and dominate. In 2003, he went to Indonesia to address the organization of Islamic Conference and asked for membership status. They listened to him and granted him observer status, citing the fact that one out of every seven Russian citizens is Muslim by background. So I paint that picture for you to suggest to you that if it's not Ezekiel 38 and 39, it sure helps you understand how Ezekiel 38 and 39 could come together, how this could take place. And all these folks that I mentioned to you are sworn, in leadership at least, are sworn enemies of the state of Israel and are certainly not friendly toward Christianity. As I talk to missionaries who are coming back from Russia, I'm hearing that it's getting harder and harder and harder to share the faith there, becoming more and more difficult. Do we see this passage of Scripture actually being fulfilled in our sight today? Perhaps. Perhaps we do. So what about Israel? I mean, Israel's not just going to stand back and take it. And I'll agree that's a, that's a strange piece of the puzzle. Because when you look at the passage carefully, listen how Israel is described. I want you to come back to about verse 11. You say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls, without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living in the center of the land. That doesn't sound like Israel, does it? I mean, Israel's not kind of sitting back saying, come and get me. We hear of them perhaps launching a preemptive strike against Iran because they know that Ahmadinejad, if he has his way, will blow them off the map. So how is it that they're caught kind of unsuspecting? How is it they're caught on their heels? If you've looked at recent headlines, you'll know that Israel's leadership is changing right now. There's kind of a change and a different mood in the government. 
And I want to read to you some of these headlines because I think they're very telling of, of an internal struggle that's taking place in Israel. Outgoing Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Omer last week offered to give 98.1% of the biblical lands of Judea and Samaria to the Palestinian Authority. Omer said last week, the vision of a greater Israel no longer exists. Omer also said, those who speak of Bible prophecies concerning a greater Israel are delusional or deluding themselves. Omer believes he is being a bold peacemaker. Actually, he's pouring fuel on the fire of radical Islam by making the extremists feel that more violence leads to more Israeli concessions. Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad immediately predicted Israel won't survive for long, saying, while some say the idea of greater Israel has expired, I say the idea of a lesser Israel has expired too. Hezbollah leader Sheikh Nasrallah said, Hezbollah was responsible for pounding the last nail in the coffin of greater Israel. The victories of 2000 and 2006 destroyed the dream of a vast Israeli power, he said, referring to Israel's retreats from southern Lebanon. Today we face mediocre Israel. When he was the vice premier of Israel, Ehud Olmert once said, We are tired of fighting. We are tired of being courageous. We are tired of winning. We are tired of defeating our enemies. Some Israeli leaders are ready to make major concessions to show they are men of goodwill. And that's the most dangerous, foolish thing that Israel could do. So depending on what happens politically in Israel right now, there is a possibility that they will step back, make major concessions, believing, trusting that everything will be peaceful. And you can see how they could just kind of relax and within a few years be taken totally by surprise. It is a possibility. It is a possibility. So well, how about the United States? Have you ever wondered where we are in prophecy? Why wouldn't we come riding to the rescue of Israel? I want you to think about our nation right now. And believe me, I pray for our nation. I love our nation. But folks, we are, we're in trouble. Look what's happening right now. Look at what we are occupied with right now in our nation. We are occupied with materialism and we are occupied with sex. That's what it boils down to. Look at the, look at the news today. Look at the periodicals. Look at the tabloids. We're, we, it's like we've gone insane. It's like we're not dealing with reality anymore. We are so preoccupied with that which does not matter. It's like we are intoxicated with things that, that have no value whatsoever, ignoring the reality of what's taking place. And right now we're being pinched by some of that reality as we see what's happened on Wall Street. Look at our troops spread in Iraq and Afghanistan. Look at our absolute dependence on oil from the Middle East. Do you think that the United States is in a place where we could react to something of that magnitude? Absolutely not. We're not in a place where we could do that. Look what just happened recently in Georgia. And I don't mean the, you know, the state here of Georgia. I'm talking about the country of Georgia. I mean, just recently, Putin sent a group of ships, naval ships, to do ex joint exercises with Venezuela. Okay, just kind of pushing and testing to see what reaction would get out of us. And right now we're pretty paralyzed. You say, well, wouldn't Europe at least step in? No. Anti-Semitism is growing in Europe every year. And a lot of Europe is becoming very dependent on oil from Russia. So why are you going to counter or attack the place that you get your oil from that you so desperately need? No, the Bible makes it very clear in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that when this happened, Israel stands all by herself. Nobody, but nobody comes to her aid. 
the invading force comes down from the north, right into Israel, to the Golan Heights. Perhaps Israel in that moment will be thinking of the Samson option. You know what that is, right? Unleashing all her nuclear weapons so that everybody goes, because they will not go through another holocaust where they are taken. And perhaps, in, you know, perhaps at that moment she's harried and thinking, is that what it's going to come down to? But when it looks its worst, I want you to see what happens. We're going to look at chapter 38. I want to start reading verse 18. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground. And all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his fellow. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstone, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I'll bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel, you will fall. You and all your troops, the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. This is a day I have spoken of. Do you hear what God is saying? God is saying the world may ignore me now. And men and prime ministers and presidents may go and do their thing with all their policies. And the world can run away from me. But God says there's a day coming when I am going to show the world that I am sovereign. And no matter what man does, I rule. And God says he's going to bring judgment in that day. Is this Armageddon? No, it's not Armageddon. That's an event that will happen after this. Could this happen before the rapture? Yes, it could. Could it happen after? Yes. Could it be before the tribulation? Yes. Could it be in the tribulation? Yes. Halfway through? Yes. That part of the puzzle just has to be played out. We can't force it. But what I'm here to say to you right now is God is sovereign and God is in control, folks. And no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in this world, I want you to be confident that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are by God's grace an overcomer. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to duck your head. God is in charge. He knows what he's doing. There's nothing happening in this world right now that has God fretting. 
God knows what he's doing. And God will take the pride of man and God will use it to bring out his glory and his praise. Amen? And you and I have to believe that. Because right now, you and I, you and I are living in a time when people are panicking. When people are in fear. Because the world around them isn't working out the way they thought it would. Don't get caught up in that hysteria. God's in charge. God's in control. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to give your heart to Jesus. I urge you to live your life not according to Oprah or anybody else, but according to the Bible. I urge you to do that so that as these things happen in the days to come, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to run. You don't have to be overwhelmed. You can stand confidently because you know who holds the future. And because he holds the future, you know You know that there's a better day coming that God has created for you and for me. And I want to end this message on a high note this morning. I want us to walk out of here and I want us to think about that better day that's coming. And even though we may have to go through some tribulation and difficulties, there's a day coming when you and I are going to witness God ruling the universe and the world in His sovereignty, in His power, in His justice, and in His righteousness. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sin. It's a glorious day we're looking forward to. And in order to honor God, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read from the book of Revelation as we close this series. And I want you to think about the future. And I don't want you to be afraid of the present. And I want you to imagine the day that's going to be for each one of us. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more pain, death, or sorrow, or crying. All these things are gone forever. When one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha. And the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I'll give freely from the springs the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders. They sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever.